What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 58 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from John of Higher Ground, based in Mendocino, California. He talks to us about one of his prized genetics, the KC36, while giving us a glimpse of its origin story, as well as some of its historical references dating back to Amsterdam in the late 1990s. We also dive into his time as a dispensary owner and what role that played in what we all see now as a solventless hash movement while discussing the changes in the California cannabis landscape from Prop 215 to Prop 64 and much more. So definitely tune in. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with his V2 caps, the best ceiling carb caps in the game. Grab yours on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass. I want to give all the people who are part of our community on Patreon a huge thank you for all their support as their support allows me to continue doing this work. I couldn't do it without it. So again, thanks to each and every one of you. If you ever can or want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin, where you can also grab the same t-shirt guests receive, stickers, extra episodes, early releases, and more through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or our website, thehashishin.com. Also, a huge shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our friends and partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, whether you're looking for the best deal in hash in their high quality full mesh wash bags, or you're looking for the rosin bags trusted by makers all over the nation from micro batch to commercial producers, you can find it all at rosinevolution.com. And as always, you can rely on their high grade products as much as on their stellar customer service and to save an additional 5% on your entire purchase while supporting the podcast. Use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. That's THI 710 all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com while supporting the podcast. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where you'll find a variety of high-end glass rigs and tubes, including their nano rigs and cyclers. It's also where you'll find their original slurpers or their more recent creation, Toro's Terp Slides and Terp Tasters, as well as a variety of accessories like marbles and millies. So no matter where you are in the world, if you appreciate functional glass art with an emphasis on function and artistic design, then visit our homies Toro at toroglassgallery.com or again on Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can follow on Instagram at Hashhead Outfitters or on their website, hashheadoutfitters.com, where they specialize in comfortable gear for hash lovers, whether you're looking for a cozy hoodie in a variety of stylish colors made of responsibly sourced 100% cotton, or you're looking for a hashy gift for a friend. They have a variety of apparel, hats, and accessories. You can grab the gear that makes you feel extra cozy with that dab. Again, at hashheadoutfitters.com. 
hashheadoutfitters.com or on their Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. A special thanks to Zach Brown Glass for providing all our guests this year with my favorite car caps, his V2 series. It's the only cap I use. And if you want to make your adapts that much more efficient, grab yours at zachbrownglass.com. That's Z-A-C-H brownglass.com or on his Instagram at zachbrownglass. I appreciate you listening and I certainly hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 58 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I'm stoked to be here with John of Higher Ground. You can follow them on Instagram at Higher Ground Canna. That's Higher Ground C-A-N-N-A or at HigherGroundCanna.com. Welcome, dude. How are you? Doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I appreciate you coming on. It's been fun hanging out with you today. Uh, We didn't expect to hang out this long, but... Like I was telling you, funny enough, it's becoming almost a, a yearly ritual the day after the Ego Clash, uh, linking up here to someone local. And so I appreciate you taking the time. It's been cool hanging out and getting to know you. And I genuinely look forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's been a great day. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, thanks for having me over, man. So let's start by talking a little bit about genetics over the last few days and the few times that we've talked about. We've talked about the strain KC. 36. Mm-hmm. And you've been telling me a little bit about it. And funny enough, I told you the story that I think my friend moved here in approximately 2014. And around 2015 or 16, we were able to get hold of some of that Casey. And at the time, it was one of the strains that stood out to us. We were pretty new to water hash, you could say. But flavor wise, as to what could be achieved uh, in a water hash and how it smoked and it was really cool. And so it's kind of full circle for me to now be connecting with you and learning a little bit more about that genetic that we found pretty special then. So can you tell us where it came from and some of the story behind it? Yeah, you know, it's a common story. You know, we turned on a lot of people that what turned out to be a very fortunate strain for us. You know, it wasn't, I mean, it was unexpected as much for us in ways. So you know, the way it came about uh, was just, I bought the seeds from a gentleman going by the name of Casey Brains at the at 1997 Amsterdam High Times Cannabis Cup at the Pax House Temp Expo. Uh, I found, you know, uh, about 50 breeders or so that were, you know, uh, setting up uh, vending. There was a wide range of pricing. You know, the average price was ten to twenty dollars a seed, but you know, it just there were a lot of people. It just felt like there was uh, as much as fifty dollars a seed. And you know, back then, you know, given uh, you know how much you know, the difference between fifty dollars in nineteen ninety seven and in twenty twenty three, you know, it was it really felt like we were getting gouged. And so when I came upon KC, he was offering his seeds for fifty cents and. You know, I just thought it was a righteous thing and I wanted to support this man. And so I bought uh, one pack of, I think he had 60 strains on the table. At the time, he had, you know, his flagship strain was the KC36. That's, you know, was on the poster behind him. It's a KC Brains, the original KC36 plant, you know, had it on there. So, you know, of course, I asked him about it. He said, at the time, you know, what I, that it was a Brazilian male Cross to a pure tie, were his words, you know, which has been quite a matter of controversy, you know, given the fact that his website says genetics undisclosed, 
but there's, you know, another uh, seed bank that claims that it's KC 606 times White Widow, right? So there's some ambiguity there, but interestingly, the power of social media uh, about uh, a year and a half ago, I posted something with regards to this. It was actually, it was a correction to a 710 Labs post where they posted some information about the KC that wasn't incorrect. So I made a post to correct it and I tagged KC Brains, uh, asked him for a clarification. And interestingly, a guy from Belgium actually called KC from that post and, you know, connected us. And it turned out that KC basically cleared up the fact that what it was is that it, it, the Brazilian material was uh, also was a, was a precursor in the same material that led to the creation of White Widow, right? So it was it was certainly Brazilian male and the type parentage that he mentioned back then. And the only plant I've ever come across in the world in my years as a cannabis cup judge, in my years as a dispensary owner, traveling through the world and seeing different strains. The Highland Tide is the only one that held serious, you know, where it was, it was just an undeniable similarities, you know, traits that, uh, you know, the, mostly in the bud structure and, and the, the really clear-headed, uh, uplifting effect. Uh, one of the main traits is also uh, a no-ceiling, where you can smoke it all day, you know, and it's effective at night as much as it is in the morning. And, you know, that's something that, uh, many strains don't have, you know, so it's, that's why typically variety is so, so nice. But, you know, this particular, and that's, that was one of the qualities of KC36 that was so special, is that you could smoke it all day. It, it kept working all day. I came from that for sure. So out of those 60 packs that you bought from him and you popped all those seeds, the KC36 was, you said, the obvious winner what made it so? Oh, the smell, the trichome production, the structure, the fast flowering time. Didn't uh, it wasn't sh- too short? It wasn't too tall. It just you know fit nicely in an indoor environment. Uh, it was done fifty-five days. It was uh, but you could pull it at fifty easily. It was it, it was a strain that not only flowered like clockwork, but it's also intensely female, which is an interesting trait because I've tried to feminize it a multitude of times. I sprayed it with a variety of different things, <laughs> you know, from the natural hormones to the colloidal silver. And that thing will not produce male flowers. So, you know, I've, my experience is there is such a thing as 100% female. And, uh, you know, KC is one of them. For sure. So when you were pulling back then, which I presume was for flower at the beginning, were you pulling trichomes any differently than you have or you do for hash at this point? Of course. Yeah, it's a very different perspective. You know, hash is so much about that delicate balance between getting a taste and flavor and you know quality of trichome. We're obviously uh, a lot less concerned with that and far more concerned with flavor and taste and experience. Generally, made a riper or or more ripe bud, you know. I think with hash, you know. Hash is such an interesting thing because genetic plays so much into it. You know, the quality of the trichome, the size of the trichome, the size of the balls and the 
you know, all of that plays such a factor. So it's, you know, it's interesting in that way. When was it that you first washed it? And did you ever realize that it was a washer until you did? Not at all. Yeah, that's an interesting story. You know, we talked about that a little bit. Yeah, so Casey, you know, I had it for 19 years before I ever washed it. And I gave it away freely to everyone who wanted it. It was a friend of mine or who was a friend of a friend of mine even. And I sold it in my dispensary. You could have walked in there and picked it up off the shelf as late as 2014. And, you know, so it wasn't, yeah, there was no concept of that really. We, I think Matt claims to, I've seen him, you know, he ran an early run. I think he did run a drive tournament run at one point, but it was nothing special. And others have claimed to have run it, but they didn't. I mean, no one ran fresh frozen of it. You know, we certainly weren't doing that. So the first time was, you know, when Higher Ground was born. And so naturally, I wanted to put our best foot forward. And, you know, I had Casey being my longest standing and, you know, most most, uh, enjoyed strain. Uh, We ran it and um, put a lot of, you know, those early rounds had a lot of, a lot of tender love and care and attention. You know, I really wanted to make a big effort. The first time we ran it, you know, it was just this it was just revelation. You know, it was just the resin quality and the complexity. We knew what we had, you know what I mean? And <laughs> at that point, I, I think I spent at least two weeks just thinking about where I was going to drop it because I knew it was going to make some noise. Obviously, you know, we had some perspective, obviously, from the dispensary years and we'd seen quite a lot of hash and, so yeah, you know, when we ran it, it was um, it made itself very apparent very quickly, and we knew we had something very special, and we chose to drop it over at um, Redwood Coast Collective in Felton. Santiago and Kaylee at the time were holding down Solventless Central, and I really liked the vibe, and I liked the theme, and so I chose that place to drop it. You know, it was such a interesting experience, and I think a lot of it had to spoke of the power of social media you know on the the waves that were being created through that with all these this young generations that were tapping into it and that was all part of it as much as anything but we dropped there and we dropped it for a very low price because at the time we had no perspective as no one really did and we dropped it i think for 35 dollars a gram and you know of course it flew off the shelf and like so many new people were driving from all over the bay and they were driving from all over the state. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> there was a line at the door. And, you know, the owner was like just tripping, you know, on uh, showing up at, you know, in the morning to unlock the doors and people are already lining up waiting for this hash, you know. And, you know, it's like it was interesting because not only did it do that, right? You know, we, we, then we started to drop it in other places and we took it to L.A., and then it got out in 1944, you know, from the earth, the weed, you know, the jungle boys, you know, all these places, right? And, and then I'm not, I'm not being, I'm not, you know, I'm not, <laughs> not to overstate it, but, you know, I think it achieved this slightly small level of rock star status. So I think, I don't know if LA is just kind of conditioned for that, but it seemed like whenever I would, you know, started to show up to dispensaries, it started to feel like this, this small level of, rock star vibe you know that I was somewhat uncomfortable with being a private person 
And yeah, it was interesting. It was, it was cool, it was fun, and it was weird. <laughs> All at the same time. But yeah, and you know, so I think what can be said is like, it's amazing to look back and see what we, what we were a part of inspiring. You know, I don't think we did it alone. But we certainly have our piece, our part, and we, you know, our place in history in uh, helping to turn the tide of the or the dominance of BHO within the market to where late 2017 into 2018, I would uh, argue, was the turning point where Solventless ran over BHO and took over the market. It was a slow progression, and I, I thought it would take longer personally. But it really only took from early 2015 until that point. You know, to, to look back now, you know, to see the, the multitudes, the hordes of young folks across the nation and around the world that are hungry, stoked, passion for the hash and is, is deep, you know. And, and to, to be, have been a part of that, you know, to, to brought it to, you know, to help spark that revolution, it's just, it's amazing, you know. No, I don't think. I mean, we knew, I think those of us who were there in the beginning, maybe not all of us, but some of us for sure, I think we knew that this would be a global movement, you know, that this would eventually, what I believe is attain its rightful place as a global commodity, you know, right there with champagne or cigars or you know, anything of that nature. It's just so quickly moving in that direction now. It's just, you know, I, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think we could have predicted it quite this way, but it's certainly happening. Yeah, you told me at one point that that trip to Amsterdam and others that you've made there to, for example, acquire genetics wasn't done because you really saw that there could ever be, for example, a career or a future okay. in this, but it was more a passion-based thing, right? And so now it's changed to a point where, like you've said in some conversation that we've had, it's like at some point you realize it could actually be a career or something that you could pursue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, have income taxes and, and whatnot. So getting to that level of legitimacy was one, one part, you know, Realizing that I could make my life through it was a different one because, you know, realizing I could make my life through it in the beginning had no hope of it achieving legitimacy in reality, you know, that we could foresee. So it was about following uh, my intuition. And I think that's true for a lot of us, you know, of my generation. In reality, you know, I think, you know, my friend Mark Key said this best in, in Sandy at Bread the Sugary. For, I think for people like us, it's, it's about the lifestyle. It was always about the lifestyle. And, and cannabis was just part of that. You know, it wasn't about, you know, that's, you know, of course they're the greedy ones. But the community, the people that had laid, came here to lay down roots, who had kids, who, you know, are multi-generational. I would argue I'm the last of kind of the last of that breed in many ways, you know, it's about the lifestyle. It, you know, it helped us to sustain a, a certain lifestyle and helped us to send our kids to school and put food on the table and live a decent life. And that was the part. But 
the opportunity to come to California, you know, that was the first step towards legitimacy, where it started. So in the beginning, it was just a young idealistic kid who just fell in love with weed because I could smoke it and not act, you know, not get blind drunk and act a fool. Being a competitive person by nature, I wanted to, you know, my goal was just to to be a cultivator at the highest level and in the hopes of one day becoming a breeder, you know, because to me and the way that we, you know, we were taught and when we perceived it, or I perceived it, this breeder is, is, you know, it's a very loose term, especially in the proliferation of the seed market in the last year or two, you know. But breeder, to me, is really something that you arrive at, you know, after many years of walking this path and having enough experience and perspective to really, you know, create things that are meaningful. And so, yeah, that's what it was all about. The world of possibilities that has sprung up and, the, you know, it's just, uh, is, was amazing. But it hasn't been easy, you know. The road to get here has been extremely challenging, you know, especially for people like myself who had a front seat to the entire experience, beginning with the Prop 215, you know, the emergence of the Green Rush, the SB 420, the repealing of, of Measure G, and then later the implementation of Prop 64. And then Ordinance 931 in Mendocino County, which was just an absolute and horrid mess. Yeah, it's, 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 (laughs) we've certainly paid our dues as a community. And those of us who are still standing and those of us who hopefully will, you know, make it to a point of uh, balance and stability within this market, it won't come without its price and it won't come without a whole lot of figuring it out, making it work. Yeah, you said there was a lot of people who you used to know that were doing this as a living, for a living, that no longer are able to a large percentage of the people that you knew in this area and beyond. So yeah, I can see how those challenges that people have gone through have led that number to decrease. And something that you and I talked about is like, you have to, in part, be so like passionate about what you're doing in this case, working with the plant that you're able to go through it at times when maybe it doesn't become worth it for other people. Well, they're in the, the, the you know, whether it's a la- the, about the lifestyle or not, you know, because if it's, I think that if it's in addition to your life, then, you know, the fluctuations of the market uh, generally are going to impact you less. If you rely entirely on this one form of income that's, you know, somewhat precarious and as we've seen, you know, unpredictable at times, then, you know, naturally people are going to, you know. And that's the reality of, I think, the vast majority of a lot of the people that were here is that, you know, they didn't have a plan. Otherwise, they were mostly just uh, kind of flying by the seat of their pants. And the reality and what I know for a fact from being a dispensary owner in southern Mendocino County where I sampled, you know, many, 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 many samples over five years from all over the North Coast. 95% or more of grow of people are average growers at best. 
You know, and there's a, a small percentage. I, I, I would, I, I used to say one in a thousand that are truly, you know, talented, world-class producers. And uh, I'd say that's still true. You know, it's still a very, very narrow field of uh, people that can, what I, would, what I would consider a world-class producer is someone who can produce you a, res- a product that's respectable in, at any, in any market in the world, in any medium. Put them in an indoor room, put them in an outdoor room, put them in a greenhouse, give them whatever. And so, you know, someone who has that ability, those guys, you know, there's not a lot of those folks. Do you think that would be in part reliant on genetics going back to a strain like the KC36 as well? No, no, no. I mean, I think, you know, somebody at that level can grow just about any strain and figure out pretty quickly how to make it work and how to to, uh, give it its full potential or a chance to express its full potential. Do you believe at this point that that full potential comes in part from growing it under the sun? Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question. There's a linear relation. This is, it's a funny thing, you know, because... I always say this. There's a, I, I think I read this in a, can't remember if it was Ed Rosenthal's book or Jorge's book, but there's a, there's a linear relationship between UV exposure and resin production. And the idea that the plant's resin is essentially it's sunscreen. So you know the more the more and the and the higher quality UV exposure, the better, more and higher quality resin you're going to get. Unfortunately, no current lamp exists that comes anywhere near close to the quality of, of full sun. You know, I don't think we'll see that in our lifetimes, but who knows? What are some of the difficulties about achieving, for example, in, in this case, a high-grade resin or hash or even rosin by growing it under the full sun, even though it has these benefits, as you're saying? It's challenging, no, sir. I mean, there's a lot of factors and, you know, there's a lot of working within the context of what Mother Nature gives you from season to season. And there's some luck involved and, uh, you know, there's certainly a large degree of, of foresight as to how to, you know, uh, see the pitfalls early and coax Mother Nature in, in the direction that you want her to because you certainly don't have any control over her really. But you can within the biology and the, to kind of coax it in one direction or another. But um, Mother Nature does the work. In reality, it's the quality of the terroir, the quality of your soils, quality of the season. There's only so much you can control, as unlike indoors, you know, where yeah, you are, are forced to control every aspect. But yeah, the challenges are many. That's why, you know, it's not very few people do it. But when these elements come together, you feel like it's like the maximum representation. That's where the magic happens. Everything that we know that that uh, we built our brand on, you know, was the the whole idea of uh, trying to champion the sun growth, trying the sun grown trichome, and to highlight the value and importance of natural production. Because, you know, when we started with this, you know, early, I think I told you earlier is, and I remember stories, you know, in the early days where people were just certain that, you know, indoor OG Kush or indoor sour diesel was just a holy, you know, the, 
the greatest hash that could be made. I would never for you know, I had this moment, it was in the summer of 2014. Uh, there's a young man named, uh, uh, I can't remember his name anymore, but he's, he wasn't part of our dispensary community here, CCA in Hopland. But he went by Off-Grid Farms. Shout out to Off-Grid Farms if you're out there. Haven't seen him in a lot of years. Really good guy. Came around the booth. He's living here in Mendo at the time. Uh, this was in San Jose. And he, you know, he comes around and he says, hey, you know, how you doing? And, I, um, t- and he starts telling me all about how he chopped his entire garden for fresh frozen. You know, and he's kind of lamenting the fact that he didn't yield very much and he'll probably never do it again. But that he was... Uh, really uh, happy with the quality that he'd gotten. And so he proceeded to service a dab of what he thought was the best one. And, you know, having lived through that dispensary experience, you know, and having, you know, seen quite a lot of concentrate at that point, it was just so, you know, off-grid was very um, organic. You know, all his stuff was sun-grown, good soil, you know, good terroir here in Mendocino. And, you know, that dab was just so much better than anything that I'd tried before that. You know, I could feel it's, it's one of those things, you know, where the energy just shoots right through you, you know, and you just feel this, this, the energy of the grower, the energy of the season, the power of, of Mother Nature. And uh, that's when my higher ground was born. And I realized that the sun-grown trichome is king. And we set out to prove that. That was part of the journey. That was part of the inspiration. And we weren't alone. You know, there were other people that deserve respect for pushing organic, pushing natural production. But we definitely have our place in history in that. You know, and I think that looking back now, what the industry standard is and, you know, how much everybody is uh, locked in on natural production whatever the hype term may be of the week, it's still the, the fact that it's clear now that, you know, Mother Nature uh, wins every time, as I say. Mother Nature is magic. You know, these are tags that I use because you're not going to beat Mother Nature. You know, if you work within her rules and you know how to, how to uh, coax her in the ways that you want and, you know, hope for the best. <laughs> it's a... Uh, and you can minimize the risk, of course, greenhouses and things, you know, but there's a, just to me, and I was having this conversation with Carlos from San Pedro Hills. He and I are doing a collaboration, seed collaboration coming up, which is going to be very interesting, actually, that, you know, really the magic, especially where it comes to breeding, you know, it's, it's the full season production and full sun, good earth, good terroir. That's where the magic happens. You know, and that's sort of the seeds that come from that are just on a level that no indoor seeds, no feminized, uh, you know, and no number of seeds that are unnatural, let's say, can ever come close to. A lot of what we championed with as far as, you know, our concentrates and the way we sort of made our name. And now with our seeds, you know, now with the seeds and the, the, the way that that's unfolding, uh, I've made the decision that I'm not going to do feminized seeds. I will never make feminized seeds. You know, as much as people want them and they ask for them, you know, there's so much of that in the world. I'm sure they'll find it. It's just that my experience is that feminized seeds are inherently unstable. And while you can work 
out quite a lot of that instability, it doesn't change the fact that the quality is just not there. In my experience, every time I've feminized seeds and grown those populations out, it's always a B version. Always. It's ne- I've never seen an improved version of feminized seed over the source material. Period. So what does that say? If you're just trying to grow something, you know, and it's not really important to you, then great, you know. But if you're a true aficionado, then God damn it, there's no other way. You know, and so that's what, you know, it's like um, at the same time, feminized genetics are this genetic dead end, you know, like they don't contribute anything to the big wheel of genetics that got us here in the first place, you know. So it's like, how did we all get here? It was because of all the, you know, there was this unfettered trade and and flow of genetics within the cannabis community around the world. You know, you know, for for people to be implementing the attitude of Monsanto, you know, around you know, it's just <laughs> clutching on to genetics, and I mean, it's it's just laughable and pathetic. And you know, and I won't say any names, but I was growing hemp for a couple of years out in Lake County, and I was trying to get, I was trying to buy a large amount of hemp seed from what seemed a very you know uh, well intended organic hemp farm up in Oregon and they sent me this contract, you know, and it was pretty much, you know, not me exaggerate a little bit, but it was definitely very uh, much like uh, the cover contracts Monsanto might send you, you know, and I just, it's just like, I'm uh, not going to work with you guys. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I will take clones off my own plants if I choose. Thank you very much. And, you know, I buy seeds from you. Yes, I'm going to grow them again. Sorry. You know, know, there's no way I was going to abide by that contract, so I just avoided it altogether. But so, you know, that's the whole take. You know, for us, the way I see it is twofold: is one by releasing genetics that are meaningful into the world that have a lot of value. You know, it's just contributing to helping to rise the tide for the whole community for the movement. And the sooner that that tide rises and that more and more of the world agrees with us that this plant deserves its rightful place as a global commodity, the sooner that we're all going to benefit from that. So whether they're giving me credit or not, whether they're well-intended or not, in the end, they're still working towards that end because we're helping to improve the quality of concentrate genetics around the world. I mean, that can be, it's a very esoteric view. I know that, but it's happening. Well, cool. I think this would be a good time for a smoke break. You down? Sounds good. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100 where you'll find everything you need to make rosin, whether that's the best deal in hash in their affordable and reliable full mesh wash bags or in Rosin Evolution's high-grade rosin bags, which are trusted by makers all over the nation from small batch to commercial. They've got you covered with their amazing customer service that gets you what you need when you need it. So if you press rosin or you wash hash, 
grab everything you need at rosinevolution.com and to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So you've brought up the dispensary a few times. Something that you told me that piqued my interest about that was you were, as far as you know, the first place to set up a dab bar within the state of California. And it wasn't necessarily something that you had gotten approved, let's say. So tell us a little bit more about what inspired that and how that unfolded. <clears throat> yeah, it was in that we were outlaws in that sense. <laughs> I don't think there's any, you know, the reality of the situation, you know. I mean, we were abiding by the rules of SB 420 in every form, except for, I guess, that eventually, although SB 420 said nothing against it. So you know how that works. It says you can't. And if it doesn't say anything, then technically you can, right? So we were operating under that premise and the whole thing that led to it I have to do the fact that, you know, after opening and being open for, I think, nearly nine months, it just, you know, became really apparent that a lot of people didn't really have a place to medicate. You know, they were going to go smoke in their car or they were going to walk down the street and smoke or you would get these kinds of states, you know, you know, patients seeing these kinds of things all the time, you know. So it just made sense, you know, and said, you know, we had the space, we cared about our patients so we decided that I decided that we were just going to do it and with the intention of trying to make our case you know to the county as to why this was a necessary move and we just did it fully expecting the county to show up at some point and say well what are you doing but that never came I know that the sheriff's department knew very well what we were doing and that they were keeping a close eye on us you know, they made that very clear. They never bothered it. And, you know, in the end, I'm sure it's because they agreed with me that it was safer for people to have a place to relax and medicate and walk out in a grounded way rather than uh, go out there and be uh, trying to smoke while they're driving or otherwise. And while a lot of people might say, well, you know, people driving stoned and the whole drama that, you know, they try to create around that idea. The facts are that every research study that's ever been done around the world has shown clearly that not only are cannabis drivers safe, but they're, they're safer on average than people who are sober. Why? Because they're calm and they're present. Knowing that reality and understanding that reality, it, you know, all of us, it just made sense. And it ended up being the right decision because... I think we had one idiot who pulled out too quickly and caused an accident. But that fool would have probably done that anyway. I mean, <laughs> who knows? The point being that it wasn't some huge catastrophe of accidents and, you know, the, the death and destruction that uh, uh, the prohibitionists would have you believe. So, yeah, our happy little journey was, was an outlaw journey, and it turned out to, to really inspire so much. It was hard to see that at the time, you know, but uh, now it's something that I think uh, everybody who was a part of will always hold an important part of their journey. 
what inspired you to not only open the dab bar, but also to open the dispensary to begin with? So what inspired me to open the dispensary, I was just talking about this. I mean, we touched on it earlier. Is the fact that, you know, I'd been providing to dispensary as, as a medical, you know, for quite a long time. So I traveled around the state. I'd seen a lot of different dispensaries in a lot of different situations, the full spectrum of, of the types of people and the types of setups and locations, because there was no regulation at the time. You know, everybody had their own version. Everybody had except for the, the basics of, of what was required by SB 420, the, you know, how you ran your business otherwise was pretty unregulated, you know, and so compare, <laughs> comparison to what we're looking at today. And so in seeing that, I just came to, arrived at the feeling that, you know, I can do this uh, as well as uh, a lot of these people. And so I decided uh, somewhere, I can't, you know, somewhere around 2009, you know, it became a serious thought. I went and took a course on dispensary ownership at Oxford Dam University. You know, that was very useful because they really taught us where we could tread, what the context of the law was, you know, how it was best approached to the, within the context of the politics at the time. All of the, you know, that gave me the confidence to move forward in a very, uh, you know, uncharted space. So it was that, yeah, it ended up, uh, I really had, it kind of envisioned, you know, in the beginning, just having my happy little shop. And it really kind of, I uh, never imagined, I think at that time that it would make so much noise. And I think we, you know, or hold such a interesting piece of uh, history in the context of this movement that we're all a part of. What do you think sparked that within that space? You know, you talked about, you mentioned earlier that some of you saw that it could be a, a possible worldwide or global movement eventually. That it was going to grow, grow very quickly. Right. I think that's, how did we see that? Yes. Or at what point did we see that? Or Both, I guess. What made that clear? Um, the excitement. The excitement that surrounded the, the quality when the quality concentrate. And to this day, I mean, I, I've seen, you know, beer aficionados get very excited about their beer. You know, you go to the Russian River Brewing Company and they're lined up around the block, you know, for the next release. And, uh, but I don't think I've ever, I think, you know, hash inspires this other level of stoke, of passion and excitement that, you know, became very apparent. It was unlike just about anything else. When that feeling started to grow and grow very quickly, you know, the, the way that the equipment uh, innovated very quickly. And I guess, you know, was there, you know, a seminal moment? Yeah, I, I, you know what it was. It's okay, I'll go to this. There was a moment when, you know, and Matt will remember this. Shout out to Matt Rise. Hope you're doing well, man. Matt comes in one day with a drop, you know, and he says, uh, this one's worth $100, right? And we never put anything on the shelf. I think we'd come close, you know, we were hitting 60 bucks, you know, or something. And, you know, I uh, said to Matt, you know, it's, you know they're going to come with pitchforks and torches for you, right, for us. <laughs> we're going to catch some heat for this, you know. And he said, you know, you, do, you know, don't care, let's do it, you know, and said, all right. 
you know, let's do this and sold out in less than 24 hours. That was the moment, I think, or one of them where, it, you know, the, the fervor, the fanaticism that this particular niche was creating and was uh, starting to become really apparent. I think there was also aspects of the fanaticism that surrounded the hash makers of the time. How many people were just clamoring to be a part of it, to learn about it, to get involved. There's a variety of things, you know, but just the energy of the time, above all things, it was just clear that um, this was something special that was unfolding which was also really primarily surrounding full metal, you know, at the time, because it wasn't until the rosin revolution that was sparked by Soil Ground, right? Phil, right? Shout out to Phil. Posted, I believe it was February 2014, you know, and, and then that changed everything, you know? You know, once the wheel was invented, so to speak, and now high-quality... Uh, extract was easily accessible to anyone who could get their hands on a hair straightener. You know, I knew that BHO's days were numbered, but uh, I was, I'm impressed by how long they held on. You know, how long BHO dominated the market. It took, it took roughly from that moment exactly four years for it to squash BHO, shove it out of the way and establish itself as the future of concentrates. That's the part, you know, that's when, obviously, when that happened and when it began, it was, it was very clear. It was inevitable. Because I think the, you know, the important part is like, this is what I was saying before, is that when we started the journey with CCA, we realized very quickly that everyone had flowers, but not everyone had concentrates. And not everyone could make quality concentrates. You know, so when that, Part of that niche really became apparent. That was part. That was uh, that was part of it also. During the time that you had the dispensary, were you guys also doing some almost like educational like components to teach people within the community some of the things that you guys were learning as the process developed? Absolutely. Yeah, we had. Uh, hash making seminars you know, with a variety of people and um, it was all it was interesting because it all happened in conjunction with the birth of the social media movement you know which led to this sort of uh, group mind you know the, the free sharing of information was was really great back then everyone was pretty much posting everything that they were doing and within and just by doing that they were you know, there was all of this shared experience, all of this innovation, all of this you know, effort that was happening. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really a, a very interesting time for that, you know, unique time in that way. What were some of the earlier brands that you carried at the shop Solventless was? So Solventless, you know, uh, the earliest guys had to be like Taylor Beasel, both Beasels. Uh, Dorian used to do the BHO as well. You know, we had uh, guys like Off Grid Farms. We'd have uh, Matt Rise, of course, who we featured, you know, early on. You know, we really uh, were Matt's biggest supporters and we carried uh, a lot of his concentrates. And we carried Full Flavor. We carried, you know, it's hard to remember everyone now, but uh, 
And then a lot of our guys had guys like uh, Happy Trees and Mellow Fellow and Baker's Bubble and were all part of our crew. Then there was, you know, we'd have the Boo's Bubble at times. I think we had Brandon at some point. List is long. I, I, it's just, I'd have to sit here and write it all out. But, um, you know, a good healthy cast of, of all of the early producers came through our, our shop at some point. There weren't a lot of people, you know, compared to today, where it's just proliferated so much. You know, it's, uh, it was definitely a much, narrow, much more narrow field than it is today. How important was it for you as not only a cultivator, but a maker, uh, dispensary owner at that point to see all this resin come through there, see the quality, see the different aspects of it? And what did it teach you? Well, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a, as a true aficionado, you live for this stuff. You know, there was a moment of that, that was work for me. <laughs> and uh, every bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly that came through was something to be learned, something to be seen. And what I learned is what I was, a lot of what I said earlier, which is that it's a pretty uh, narrow field of people who are doing really, really high quality work. Seeing the wide range of, of what people, you know, any one farmer can do with uh, a specific strain, I think was very interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of that, yeah. Going back to what we were talking about earlier in regards to the sun and, and how you feel like the quality of the sun lends to growing better resin, you equated it to being like the sunscreen for the plants. How much do you feel like part of that came from looking at it at the resin level and not necessarily at like the flower or like the bud level like you were used to in the past? Oh, it had a lot to do with it. No question. You know, when we really went wholeheartedly into fresh frozen productions, the whole solventless effort, uh, you, you know, you see very quickly uh, as they say, the, the resin never lies. Frenchie used to love to say that, you know, that the resin tells the tale of the season, of the quality of the grower, and, you know, it's all there to be seen. And, um, you know, when you see a, re- a really quality resin, that's, uh, every, you know, everything come together and, and, and really produce something that's truly excellent in the sun, in quality soil, the level of stability, the complexity, the power of it, the way with it, when you consume it, it, it just, you know, it's a, it can be an, an almost life-changing experience. <laughs> you know, like the, the expansiveness, the potency, the, the, the quality of the, of the season, just of the sunshine. You know, it's just uh, night and day from what can be done indoors. And, you know, while you can do some excellent things indoors and under lamps, you know, and in greenhouse, you know, hold up, I think, of, you know, in terms of resin quality, it's, it still can be done very, very well. Full sun, when done right, is, is you know, is king uh, in terms of the quality of experience. Now, if I'm over here, you know, uh, splitting hairs, uh, over 
a speck or, uh, you know, the, how it burns on my nail. It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting perspective because there's something to consider because, you know, I, while cleanliness is important, I think that uh, as in all things, there's a balance there. You know, there's a fine line to be walked because, you know, something that maybe, you know, fits the description of a, of a modern, perfect, quote, hash, you know, that um, quite frankly, you know, might impress me visually is really not satisfying me in a way that, that I'm looking for. So is that worth the cleanliness? Am I paying that kind of money for something that is just not doing it? And, you know, it's, to some degree, you know, these things are enough to satisfy the average person, the average consumer, the novice consumer, the intermediate consumer even. For somebody like myself, you know, as someone who has a, been a medical consumer for many, many years, it's just not what I'm looking for, period. What I'm looking for is the one something I can take a dab of and go work for four hours. I don't need to take two, three, four dabs. Just one. Yeah, and there's a little jar on it. But you know what? That jar is going to last me a hell of a lot longer. And the quality of experience and the quality of the medicinal effect and the way it allows me to focus on work and be productive. I'm going to have to come back and dab that other stuff four or five times to achieve that. So, you know, there's, you see what I'm saying about the balance? You know, it's like the focus on aesthetic, I think, is just as, misgu as misguided as our focus on uh, all the things that distract us from being healthy, happy human beings in our current state of the world and in our current reality as Americans. You know, it all goes hand in hand, in my view. Symptoms of the same thing. I mean, if you can put, you know, something that is truly special in front of someone and they dab it, and their primary focus is that their char is not as clean as they'd like it, I mean, pick your analogy. It's laughable, really. So you mentioned potency, but you also have mentioned the word expansiveness a few times. Mm -hmm. Can you expand upon what you mean when you say that? I mean, that feeling when you take a really high-quality concentrate and you inhale it, it's, there's a large amount where it expands in your lungs. And, you know, if you have that feeling of drawing in and then having to capture it, and then when you release it, it just billows out of your mouth like a fire hose that kind of expansiveness and like you know where you know you smoke some of the, you dab some of this indoor stuff and you know i breathe it in and i don't feel like i breathe in that much and then when i blow it out not much comes out but i put this huge flag on there that's what i call having no expansiveness expansiveness is when you know something that's really potent and really well done and you can barely contain it. You blow it out. That's something with expansiveness and potency and complexity and quality inputs and probably, you know, hopefully didn't get sprayed and 
was fortunate enough of a season for it all to come together. And that's the kind of quality you don't see often. You know, there's only a few producers out there that achieve that level of quality and that level of well-rounded experience, taste, flavor, medicinal effect, the whole package. Yeah, I'm not trying to look at jewelry. Not personally. I mean, I like it to look good, but that's definitely not first on the list. I mean, it's on the list. Fair enough to say, right? For all of us. There should be, whatever. Yeah, I think we're, A, we're visual creatures. B, there certainly is a hyper-focus on not only visuals, but like the results and visuals too, whether in this case it's residue or, or not. But in the end, we are using these products also for our end purpose, which is, you know, relating it to potency or, or, or an effect or a certain type of chemical reaction to this. How much bang for your buck are you getting? That's what it comes down to. And you're never going to get the bang for your buck you can get from Mother Nature under a lamp. It's just not going to happen. Not me, in the current state of the world. Someone proved me wrong. I mean, I'd love to be proved wrong, you know. You know, no absolutes here, that's for sure. Relating that to what I started saying in the podcast about us coming off a day off the ego clash, you were in the hash category. You've competed several years. This is the second time, actually. Second time. I've been invited for quite a while, and it's, I've, uh, for some reason, Destiny uh, didn't let me get there until last year. So how many, for example, samples do you feel have these characteristics that you're talking about? And obviously potency maybe isn't something that you can necessarily judge in a setting like that, but... Oh, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... You know, I think that there are aspects of potency that can be ascertained even in, even 35 dabs deep, you know. Of course, it becomes murky to a large extent, you know, but I think, I, you know, what I, what I feel is that even in the, in the Ego Clash and other competitions, it's still a very narrow field. You know, a small percentage of the people that out there that are producing what I would consider a world-class concentrate. Now, I will say this, that the field is growing in a very real way. And that's, you know, beautiful to see. This year, I think, you know, last year there was some great competition, but I'd say this year was a little, was a little, uh, a little, a little tougher all around. I think that people really brought it this year. But yeah, I'd say, I mean, if you want a certain number, I thought roughly seven of them last year. I thought five to seven of them really deserved a lot of respect. Uh, the rest of the field, I thought, really, you know, didn't come close. And, uh, and this year was about the same. Maybe a couple more. So based on what you've said throughout the interview, what are you, for example, judging on, if not only on how much residue it leaves? You know, we talked about potency, for example, but expansiveness, what's something else that you're looking for? What makes a world-class concentrate for you? There's a variety of things, the first of which is, you know, when I opened that jar, 
I shouldn't have to look for the nose. You know, if I have to reach down in there and smell it and smell it twice and smell it three times and kind of try to figure out what it smells like, it's already lost. Because Aquila, a really well done concentration, reach up out of the jar and slap you in the nose the moment you open it. That's one of the most telling things. That means that there's not too much water in there that has been dried properly, that the terpene content is high, that the quality of the resin is, is there, the quality of the season is there. So that's, that's number one. Uh, visually, of course, you can see quite a lot about the cleanliness of the extraction, about the general quality of the melt, and you know all those things are important as well. But for me, it's, you know, as much as anything, it's experience, experience, experience. And so if I take a, you know, and when I take, when I judge, you know, I tend to take a pretty healthy dab, you know, I'm not too conservative about it. I tend to pace myself uh, because I want to get a real clear picture, you know, of what that, that, you know, what that amount will do and then gauge roughly that same size of dab across all the different wines, which gives me an idea who's better in those regards. You know, generally, it should be smooth. It shouldn't be uncomfortable in any way. It shouldn't burn my nose. It shouldn't irritate my throat. You know, if there's any level of discomfort, it's, you know, something that shouldn't be there. Then tastefulness, you know, I'm looking for something that tastes, that is re- that the taste is equal or better than the smell. You know, because there's so many things out there that you smell and they don't taste, or they smell and they don't, they taste completely different, right? You know, so for me, it's like if if, if a hash has a theme, you know, I want that hash to fit that theme, you know, and I want it to 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 taste and smell like that. So those parts are important, and then you know, in actually taking the dab. The expansiveness, the amount of vapor that that size that creates tells you a lot about the expansiveness, the the potency, things that we talked about. Of course, you know, melt being one of the categories, at least the ego clash, you know, that's something that's paid attention to, of course. I don't think that that, you know, I've seen judges where that's the primary way to judge, it seems. Well, maybe that's kind of exaggerating the point, but we're, it's a very important, if not the most important thing. I do think it matters and it's important. And of course, within reason, you know, I just think that, you know, to expect melt to melt like rosin, we'll just smoke rosin. If you want your full melt to melt like rosin, just smoke rosin. Do you feel like there's some strains that will just never do that, but at the same time have other certain qualities to it that's like you've kind of hinted at worth smoking or having regardless of that? Of course. There's a multitude of those. I think it's always, uh, and you, you know, perspective is a funny thing. I mean, I understand how uh, everybody covets the perfect melt. Without a doubt, I'm well aware of it. But as I said, you know, I think that's just a symptom of a culture that doesn't have the focus necessarily in the, in the most balanced place. Yeah, a lot is lost there, I think, if you don't give a chance to things that maybe have uh, a tiny percentage of char, just a tiny bit. 
It's okay sometimes, guys. It's okay. Try, the, the nail won't be that hard to clean, you know. But okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, of course, excessive amounts of char, we can all agree, is undesirable. And yes, you know, there's a line to be crossed. I'm not saying that, you know, it's, uh, you know, I accept any level of char, but uh, mine just, I don't think, needs to smell like rosin. Because I find that the, the highest quality experience really, you know, often comes with just a tiny bit. Would you say that for you, the hash or the melt kind of gives you a different, maybe sounds like more medicinal effect than like rosin? The hash and the melt? Well, yeah, of course. It's a more well-rounded lift. It's more potent. You know, anybody can agree to that. Uh, rosin uh, is a very refined and specific type of vibes. You know, of course, it varies depending on the strain quite a bit, but you know, I, I couldn't smoke rosin always and forever. I, I get sick of smoking rosin and have to, you know, occasionally uh, smoke some full mouth or even just go smoke a joint because the way that those medicate you is very different. You know, and as we, I think I mentioned earlier, how, you know, the way that, that smoking flour will medicate you is... Uh, you know, it just cuts much deeper and has a much more powerful medicinal effect on your nervous system that, you know, mouse just won't do. And I just know that from my own experience, you know, where, you know, there's been times when, you know, we all go through some stressful times and I find that the, that the melts and the concentrates can satisfy quite a lot, but in times of heavy stress, that there's nothing like a nice joint. So calm your soul and your spirit and let you think clearly, you know. And um, so yeah, it all has value too, though, because as I think we talked, you know, I mentioned this too, is that the thing about concentrates and part of the reason, I think this goes back to what we were touching on earlier about how, and I meant to say this actually about how one of the things that led to us realizing that this niche was so powerful and had so much potential was the fact that I... As a, as a dispensary owner at the time, was consuming a lot of samples and was keeping a really high tolerance, you know, and trying a wide range of flowers and edibles and different things and had a, full, had a really wide range of experiences in, in trying to work through the day. <laughs> For sure. You, you know, and like, have it, you know, had certain products just completely wreck my day and like, you know, and, you know, so what I realized quickly that way was that when the solventless movement really arose, that I could consume these products throughout the day and stay very focused and not be forgetful and be very productive. And I didn't spend nearly as much time rolling joints and standing out back smoking them. And I could go and medicate in a matter of moments and be back right back to work and feel fo satisfied and focused. And I think that's part of it that gets lost in conversation. You know, you get guys like Joe Rogan going, they're crazy with their dabbers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, the reality is it's, you know, it's, it's extremely productive and functional. I think that's a, a huge value uh, to the world because... You know, it's people use all kinds of things to stay. Try to stay productive. Honestly, 
vaporizing very refined concentrates is one of the healthiest things you could possibly do. You said one of the things that amazes you about cannabis is the way that it is able to change where you may be rather quickly. Yeah, that's what I term I often use because it's that's part of the thing that, you know, the prohibitionists keep the normies so scared, you know, that they don't, they can't see straight, you know. But I think that the mo- one of the, for myself and for the world, one of the most important attributes of cannabis is the fact that it has the ability to correct your mood. And, you know, most of the normies can't get past the tolerance aspect. So they're like, oh, my God, it makes me so high. You, know, you walk through the, through that wall and you get to, to a place of tolerance where you can enjoy cannabis, you realize that it has their unique ability to take you from what I would consider in a scale of one to ten, of zero to ten, ten being raging, mad, frustrated, to zero, completely calm and at peace in a matter of moments. And you, you know, and it's like it's something that you know all of us cannabis lovers know very well. It's just such a travesty of justice, you know. They keep us so scared. They keep it, you know, the the mainstream so scared of this planet so they can impose their ridiculous regulations and maintain the perception that cannabis is so dangerous. Because in reality, there's no, it doesn't affect your, the next day, there's no hangover. It, you know, it doesn't create a, depend, a dependence, a physical dependence. And the whole aspect of, of, of people arguing that it's addictive, you know, I just don't agree with it at all. I mean, every scientific study has shown that cannabis is not physically addictive, period. And any of us have experienced it not very well. You know, there's no coming, you know, going through withdrawals and all of that sort of thing. And I always use the analogy that, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm first man and I'm walking through the forest and I come upon a watermelon and I eat that watermelon and I quite enjoy that watermelon and that watermelon alkalizes my body and it hydrates my body and it makes me feel very good right and I, I'm going to come back and I'm going to eat that watermelon again and then maybe I'm going to plant those watermelons and I'm going to eat the shit out of them I'm going to share them with my whole tribe right so am I now addicted to watermelons now if it was you know if, I think the line is drawn in dysfunction right or the perceived, you know, and so they thrive on the state of perceived dysfunction at every turn. Yeah, it's it's just a travesty of justice in my view. Yeah, no, that's a pretty fair point. Well, I think this might be a good time for a second smoke break, you done? Sounds good. All right, sounds good. I'd like to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 58 with John of Higher Ground and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Macro Melts in SoCal, Garland in DC, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, Rezon Reserve in Michigan, Melt Walkie J, the Chile Relleno Burrito, Nick the Intern in Solventless AF, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Turp Wizard, David of Rosin Evolution, and the homie, the real cannabis Chris. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So when we talked about acquiring the KC36 seats, you talked about going to Amsterdam. I think you said 97. 
on that trip, obviously you were getting seeds, but you were also there for a cannabis cup to judge. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and maybe some of the things that you saw and some of the people you met? Uh, yeah, you know, it was really cool that period, particular period of time, because it was, you know, you could buy in as a judge. It was a, you know, a group of roughly 1,500 or so people that flew, you know, descended on Amsterdam for that. Uh, the majority of them were American, but it was people from all over the world. It included, you know, everyone that I think, you know, wanted to be at the forefront. Of, of this movement of, of what was happening with cannabis at the time, you know. But it was a very small group, you know, and, and because of that experience, you know, everybody that now is iconic or legendary, but, you know, was at the, at the time, or maybe were at the time, to some extent, was very, everyone was very accessible, you know, and it was, it was a time when there was a situation where you could easily connect with all these people that you read about in high times and all these people that you, that you, you had read books about and had written books to pave the way. And, you know, like Jack Herrera, Robert Connell Clark, and you know, Jorge Cervantes and Ed Rosenthal. And there were a lot of counterculture figures as well, you know. It was uh, just a, a really cool collection of, of cannabis-minded people. So at the time, the judging was very different. You know, we had a full week. They basically gave us a list of coffee shops that had entered and or seed companies. And so we would travel th touring the city, uh, for, you know, going down the list. And we would go to each shop and it was a, uh, either they would sell you the entries at a discounted rate and then probably give you away a bunch of stuff or they would just give you the entries for free. And, you know, it ranged quite a lot. So how, you know, how much they gave you and how well they treated you. But I think they did a lot of, you know, there was a lot of value in that, in that you go to one shop, you experience, you know, an entry. And now you have to walk quite a ways and kind of clear your head a little bit and kind of have this chance. I think it lended itself well to, I think, consuming that many strains over so I remember thinking, I remember the first year was 73 entries. <laughs> and so that's an average of 10 a day, you know, which is, you know, compared to just sitting there and doing it, you know, getting to walk around the city or, you know, occasionally take a shuttle from here to there. Like, it's just, uh, I think it provides a nice change of ambiance and focus. It was more enjoyable that way. And plus you see the city and everything. And so, yeah, those and those times, I think, the value in going and immersing yourself in the culture and meeting the breeders and talking shop with them, sitting, you know, going to the grow seminars and, you know, asking questions and, you know, that all of that, you know, was as, uh, as much the reason why I went as, as to, you know, get genetics and to, or to be a judge and all of it was tied together, of course. But yeah, no, it was a really fun experience at the time there was no there was really nothing else competing with it so it was regarded and in pretty high uh, regard you know which sadly they tanked with their greedy ways uh, i know tom 4k would roll over in his grave if he saw what was happening to his company 
Uh, he was an outlaw, you know. He was a, a counterculture figure that certainly wouldn't have stood for any of this nonsense. But yeah, it's, it's, it's sad to see because High Times was very well respected for so long. Uh, and that event was great. And what we learned and what we gained as far as genetics and knowledge and perspective uh, was just incalculable and has everything to do with what led me to here today, to where I am today. No doubt about it. The reason in part that you were there acquiring those genetics mm. was because you were popping beans because you had no access to any cuts. So tell us a little bit about that early experience growing plants in a place where it was pretty precarious to do so. In the mouth of the lion, as I used to say. You know, we put, it, we put our, on our lights and we planted our seeds. Because, you know, you don't mess with Texas. Uh, you know that. If you've ever been, if spent any amount of time in Texas, you know, you understand the, the degree to which that is true. And so, yeah, we had absolutely no delusions about that. I think that, uh, yeah, it was, you know, necessity is, uh, breeds, intent, you know, creativity. Yeah, the need to just go do things the old-fashioned way. And so you get some seeds and you grow them out and you find your phenos and you, and you go from there. So happy to have done it that way, though. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine I, my first ever indoor crop, the first crop I ever grew as a, as a young adult was uh, from seed. You know, many of the early crops that I grew were from seed. And I, I definitely learned the art of propagation and cloning and propagating seeds. And all that was, you know, fully just hands-on experience, doing learning by doing, you know, learn from the book. Uh, it was all I had. There was no one to talk to. There was no one you could ask to. I didn't know anyone growing indoors. It was uh, an interesting time you know for that but again you know it's kind of like learning music and just pushing all the buttons and figuring out which ones work you know if someone lays it out for you then it's like here push these particular keys but you don't know why you're pushing them if you push them all then that gives you perspective and that's a lot of what i did at the time me and my my homies and my crew did at the time which is I tried everything. I tried every, like literally you go to the indoor marijuana horticulture and go to the back section and look at all of the different mediums and all the different possibilities for fertilizers and mediums that Jorge suggests in there. I tried them all intentionally, you know, like in that early process. You learn a lot, you know, you learn a lot about what affects productivity above all things and and what this plant, how much and how little this plant really needs. But yeah, and all that experience was really valuable. You know, I'm, I'm much happier to have learned it myself and walked through that fire than to have someone hand it to me or to have mentored under someone. Or I can't say I had that experience. I, I learned on my own and then showed as many people as I could, uh, pretty much. So now the concept of pheno hunting whether we're using that word correctly, like in the botanical sense or not. Right. Well, that's our term, right? Right. So it's a pretty commonly understood thing, right? It's like part of this modern hash scene, I feel like. At that time, 
like you said, there's not much information out there. You do have access. You reference the book, and you also reference Jorge Cervantes. So I'm assuming it's his book. Mm-hmm. Is that partly where you're getting your knowledge as to understanding like what you're doing with these seeds and in looking for particular genetics to then keep? Indoor marijuana horticulture does may have a small section on breeding, but I don't. If I rec- I don't recall, but that's not at all where I learned the breeding aspect. You know, that, that's just where we learned how to how to grow indoors. You know, because in Texas there was no other choice, obviously. You know, at the time. Yeah, no, that's more so what I meant. It's just like the the growing indoors and knowing that you you needed to like pheno hunt within seeds mm-hmm. is that you had had you learned that from the book or had you learned that from uh, like was that an intuitive thing that you understood that you needed to find you know a winner in this population for example or I believe it was yeah I believe he talks about that in the book growing from clone growing from seed I believe there's a section on that but that's that's kind of uh, growing 101 grow seeds you find one you like you grow that one but it's also, you know, the basis of selective breeding. That's the way, you know, we selectively bred for you know, thousands of years. So I already understood that very well from my, just from my understanding of agriculture. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that was, you know, very much of, the book was really just the, the, the mechanics of uh, being Mother Nature, you know, so to speak. Earlier, you mentioned that indoor, you know, you had to have a lot more control of the environment. What were some of the early lessons that you learned by starting cultivating indoors? Mm. Well, there's a lot of things that you learn, you know, and that's why I always, there's, I mean, everything you learn, you learn everything about what this plant wants or doesn't want, even in the smallest setting. I always say that to people, to people who are learning or, it's so much, in fact, it's so, it's so much better to start as small as you possibly can, you know, and just focus on that, you know, until you're producing something that you're really satisfied with, because you do learn a lot in those environments. Um, and I, you know, I learned a lot about not overwatering, knowing that some plants uh, like more nutrient than others, some plants like more light than others, some plants need more wind than others. You know, what happens when you don't have any wind? What happens when you don't have enough light? What happens when you... All of those mistakes and all of the process is all valuable and, and much better to do on a small scale for a while. Because, you know, you have some of these cats that... I've, and I've seen it, you know. There's there's novice-level growers that I've seen that are taking on million-dollar projects. And, boy, I'd hate to, you know, just be fouling it up on simple things that you could have learned in a closet. You know, uh, Spend, you know, that kind of money. Yeah, there's a lot of value. There was a lot of value in it, without a doubt. Just a bit ago, you mentioned meeting Jack Herrera. You also told me that outside of cultivating, part of your initial interest in cannabis was also activism. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing and some of the things that you were part of? So how it all began for me, was in an environment where growing was just was not a reality, you know. So activism was a natural choice, you know. I think that, uh, so it was Richard Lee, you know, going back to Richard Lee. So it all began 
in Richard Lee's hemp, the hemp store in Houston, Texas, in the Mel in the Melrose district. And um, Richard Lee is an interesting character and you know, someone who deserves a lot of respect. His story is, I think, one that really hasn't been told a whole lot. But his journey, just to quickly surmise it, you know, he uh, was a, worked in stage production, you know, producing concert, live concerts for the biggest names in the industry, you know, Madonna, Michael Jackson, you name it. He, you know, he did all, you know, everyone you can think of. He was working at that level. Boom fell on him at a, what was the concert? Uh, well, it doesn't matter. Boom falls on him. He loses use of his legs. He gets a million dollars, uh, several million dollars settlement. And then Richard goes on to spend the rest of his life fighting for Canada's freedom until he retired after the feds went hard after him from making any other attempts at legalization like he did in 2010. So he took that money. One of the first things he did was he opened this little store in Houston called the Hemp Store. And the Hemp Store was an oasis of knowledge at the time because there was no internet. There were, you know, you couldn't find this information in the public library, couldn't find it in the bookstores. But Richard had books on cultivation. He had, you know, he had Jorge Cervantes' book. He, and more importantly, he had Jack Herrera's book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And so where I'm, you know, just coming out of high school, you know, I, come up, I already have a passion for cannabis. And I come upon this place and reading the, you know, reading it, The Emperor Wears No Clothes is where, where that begins. Because and understanding who Jack Herrera is and what his intention and his focus and his dedication was all about. You know, when you read what is essentially his life's work, you know, you, you, I think, realize the depth to which we as humans are being prevented from our most important plant resource, the degree of hypocrisy and the degree to which we have been lied to is just becomes apparent to a point that is just infuriating, you know, and it just inspires you to do something. The emperor wears no clothes is, is a very <laughs> well-documented account of all that, of the things I just mentioned. And so that's where it begins. You know, I helped uh, distribute papers from Rich, for Richard from time to time. I started growing in a closet, started learning that, pretty soon started traveling to Amsterdam and you know, actually met Jack and that inspired me even more, you know, and it's... Uh, I guess, you know, what really inspires me the most and what's really brought me to this place, you know, where I am today is just, I really believe that the most important thing that we're all working towards is cannabis freedom. And that gets lost in the conversation when all of the dollar signs and all of the corporate projections of market size and potential are constantly being flashed across the headlines and people are rushing to get their slice of the pie. And at the same time that people are still being arrested, there's still a massive population of people in jail, millions of them for victimless drug crimes. And there's still the stigma. The stigma hasn't left us. The taboo hasn't left us. The federal government is still happy to take advantage of us and treat us like second-class citizens. And all of this 
You know, it's like, you just, you know, it's just hard to watch the hype and the nonsense, the infighting, the, the ridiculousness that we've seen. Now, I, I do think that, you know, it's been really amazing to see what's happened since 2018, the fervor that we all, that we all saw and felt following the passage of Prop 64 in 2016, and especially in the implementation of it in 2018, you know, the billions of dollars of investment capital that flowed into this area and the massive losses that have occurred, been incurred ever since, you know, since. It's just amazing, really. It's uh, such a massive opportunity has been, been uh, lost for so many. At the same time, it, it, there's a certain amount of of satisfaction and watching all that big money uh, fall flat on its face, you know. There's, I think there's a large amount of karma attached to that because this plant belongs to all of us, belongs to the world, belongs to humanity. And, you know, I think it's like these attempts to shackle the bear and make it do what they want, you know. And I think the bear just broke loose and the minute that they tried to corral it, you know, that's just the same way that the black market went into high gear, you know, <laughs> now the way that, you know, it's like, it's, it seems like it, the tsunami came and went and now what's left behind it, you know, it's like, really seems like, um, I don't know. I think that the future is bright and there's a world of potential that lies ahead for, for those of us who are willing, who have stuck it out and are willing to stick it out and, also, a bright future for the uh, for even the big money, but in my view, once they accept the fact that if they really want a piece of this market, they need to engage with those of us that have experience and perspective of the market. They're the true culture, the true consumers. You know how that big push of, of them trying, you know, there was this big, especially out of Colorado and some of the more mature markets where they're saying, oh, we want to hire non-industry people that have the expertise in these particular fields and we're not going to hire any of these growers. Right? Yeah, so, okay, there's plenty of riffraff there, but there's also a lot of generational talent there. You know, a multitude of ranges of educational levels and experience and it's just a lot of that's being lost now. It's, you know, but it's still out there, you know, and I think that the companies that really have the sense to engage with that in an honest way will do very well. But scale is scale. Like I, th- I think it's, there'll be room for all of it. And there can be room for all of it. It's clearly not what they want. Speaking of uh, rushes of sorts, you brought up also being present here for the Green Rush. Mm-hmm. Can you run us through what that was? So... There was a bill in, on, on the November 2000 ballot. I keep going back and forth between Measure G and Measure B. I believe it was Measure G. And I, the reason I get confused is because I believe it was Measure B that repealed Measure G. Right? And gotcha. I, I was on, I believe, on the 2014 ballot. That was pushed through here in the county very quietly. Right? On the, they pushed it on a June ballot when younger voters weren't around to con- contest it too much. Right? But what was, you know, what caused the Green Rush began with Prop 215, but Prop 215 only began to spark the interest, you know, only the truly adventurous 
uh, and Bold were, I think, really started to, you know, make the push towards being here. So that early wave, I think, was different from the later wave. So the later wave, the second wave, I think the way it really started to pick up was when men, it was Measure G, which proposed that anybody over the age of 18 in Mendocino County, uh, regardless of whether or not they had a doctor's recommendation, had legal right to medicine. And in Mendocino County, under that ordinance, meant that they had a legal right to 25 plants and that they could collectively grow those 25 plants, right? Which was uh, allowed under Prop 215. So now you were seeing patients get, get together and have, you know, 20, 30, 40 acre grows. You'd see, you know, there's still pictures of them that you can see that were in the Ukiah Valley at the time. So that was like the first wave. And then the heat, when it really, you know, when the green rush really took off, had everything to do with SB 420 because once SB 420 established a dispensary system, well, now you could come to California, get yourself a doctor's recommendation, get yourself your state ID, and you could grow, depending on what your county said, you could grow and sell the excess medicine to dispensaries across the state. And I think we had somewhere around 3,000 at the peak. You know, which think you know, that's you know, you had quite a lot of choices of places where you could take your cannabis. You know, and what that that really sparked a green rush. And the thing about that whole period that people don't talk about a lot is the fact that it created a truly laissez-faire free market, a self-regulating free market. And in the modern world, that is extremely rare. And that golden era that we all talk about has everything to do with that fact. The fact that you could, just like your tomato, I can grow my tomatoes and I can go and sell them by the roadside. Well, very much that same sort of thing. You know, given the market price at the time, you know, it afforded a very comfortable life for not a lot of work or reasonable amount of work. Uh, I think is maybe a more realistic word or, you know, uh, a better word. So that made people flock here from all over the country and then from all over the world. So there were two groups of people. There were the farm, the growers, cultivators, uh, who largely came here and employed the locals, right? <laughs> Which was kind of an interesting. Like there was, of course, a certain amount of locals. The further you go north, it seems like the more there were. But like a lot of those people that came here from other places came and employed a lot of the locals. And at the same time, they drew a lot of their friends from all over the world who would then come here during trim season and during planting season, but especially during trim season. And it got to the point where, you know, there were, there'd be groups of them at the grocery stores with their son, you know, looking for work, you know, they'd be all over the 101, you know, they literally flock here, you know, there was so many of them it was it was pretty comical honestly that raged on until well i'd say you know really it was the passage of press 64 that started the decline but it was the market crash that you know ensured the end of the green rush uh because once the valley wasn't there then there was no attraction People couldn't come here and work for a few months and then travel the world 
and then come back and do it again. You know, and it's a very fortunate reality for a lot of young people and for all of us. You know, it was a really special time. But yeah, it's uh, as they say, all good things came to an end. I think that you know, really looking at it, how the implementation of Prop sixty four, you know, it's just uh, yeah, has really shifted things and created a very different environment. That's for certain. Yeah, I think you said to me at one point something like we maybe didn't realize what we had and possibly appreciate what we had at that moment. A lot of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no question that um, the vast majority of people, I think we all were benefiting from these things and we're feeling lucky for them, but I don't think that a lot of people realize. And I think a lot of people were deluded in thinking this would go on forever on some level because evident by the fact that when things shifted, there were so many people who didn't have a plan B and, you know, why so many people failed and left or shut down and retired. You know, there was no plan B for those people, you know, and they didn't have the skills to compete because when that, once that happened, it became extremely competitive and only the best of the best survived in that environment, which is why 95% of the market is gone. You know, of, uh, of the production that we had prior to the market crash. You know, I'd say it's come back quite a lot in these last couple of years, but that's I mean, nowhere near what we used to do. That's been very interesting, for sure, to be a front, to, to be in a, a front row spectator, too, without a doubt. Yeah, you're moving here at a certain time, and being here for a while definitely has given you a certain perspective on how things have played out here yeah been a very uh, attentive uh, audience in that no doubt yeah it's pretty cool and it's cool that you're able to share with us so it's like we've talked about a little bit it's like uh, kind of keeping these these histories alive by documenting them to a degree well uh, are you down for one last smoke break sounds good alright cool Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where they've continued innovating functional glass art for over the last 20 years through the vision and creativity of artist JP Toro. JP has been exploring his passion for cannabis, glass, and function over the last two decades to be at a point where his designs are now taking dabbing to a whole new level for all of us. He's introduced us to the concept of the slurper through his desire and curiosity to explore a different airflow concept for quartz. He comes up with things that look awesome that are equally as awesome and function like his jet cyclers, which come in a range of styles to exploring exciting colorways on a variety of their rigs and pipes, including a recent favorite of mine, the crayon yellow jet perk. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro, who stays at the forefront of innovation at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So tell us a little bit about where the name Higher Ground comes from. Uh, Higher Ground comes from a lot more forethought than you would think. It's um, a physical reference as much as anything. 
higher ground farms is physically on higher ground. Uh, at the same time that the play on words was a large part of the inspiration. You know, it's higher, it's reaching higher, it's, it's, you know, getting you higher, so to speak, while remaining grounded, you know. So in that sense, it was sort of uh, like it's reaching for the stars while it's keeping its feet on the ground. All of these sort of suggestions, you know. And it was just inspiration, it just struck me. And I love the song and it just made sense. And it served us very well, you know. I think there's a certain, and even a certain, it even breeds a certain competitive feel to it. It's higher, which maybe is less so, but uh, more than anything that it's, it's, it's elevating. Interestingly now, we have several groups using our name and competing for it, which is interesting. But uh, surprisingly, I've been contacting them directly and uh, just trying to talk to people has proved to be much more effective. I don't think anybody's out to harm each other. In talking to folks, everybody can agree that, you know, it's best if we just find somebody to make a distinction so people aren't uh, confused. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Heading in a different direction, you brought up breeding earlier. You know, you referenced the Robert Connell Clark book. Mm -hmm. You also said to me earlier that, you know, it was more than a decade after you made your first genetics that you ever sold any kind of genetics mm -hmm. and that you feel like it takes quite a bit of time to have uh, some mastery of being able to, I don't know if you can tell us it's the art of selection, the combination of the different types of genetics and, and making them have results that you're looking for. What do you have to say about breeding? How do you go about it? And how long does it take to gain mastery of it? Well, I think breeding is a lifelong discipline. You know, and any lifelong discipline is something that requires uh, dedication and focus and that, you know, you eventually arrive at mastery with enough work, experience, and perspective. It's very much that for, you know, any martial art or playing an instrument or any, any discipline. So for me, that's always the way I viewed it because coming up, the breeders were the most experienced, generally the ones that I looked up to anyway, <clears throat> were the most experienced and had the most perspective. And, uh, you know, that's what I aspired to. And, you know, certainly was uh, very uh, apprehensive to even call myself a breeder for a long time. You know, only recently, I think, have I fully embraced that role because, you know, I feel like I've, in an honest way, I can, I can say that I'm doing work that's deserved respect and that doesn't come from somebody who's just trying to take your money as much as possible. You know, it comes from a place of integrity. It comes from a place of trying to give something back. So on that note, you've been working a lot of different lines. A lot of them are with your KC36 that is unique to yourself that you've found and like you said I've had for years 19 years before you ever washed it mm -hmm. so tell us about some of the projects you have going on some of the crosses that you're excited about possibly and some of the profiles I know you brought up 710 labs and like I mentioned 
somebody from their squad in Michigan was able to get me some Starburst 36 when I was there. And so it's cool to see your genetics out there. So tell us about, again, you know, the projects that you're working on and how it feels to see some of these projects out in the wild. Yeah, I mean, 710 Labs has been, I think, uh, been a really um, positive thing for them to work with their genetics and highlight. You know, they've been kind in highlighting us as, a, as the breeders. And it, it's just, it's just uh, you know, been really amazing to watch it all unfold, to see the way that it's uh, slowly speaking for itself in a real way. You know, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive and is growing from month to month and year to year in a way that uh, I think is really, you know, organic and, you know, honest because it's not the case that we're spending tons of money on advertising. It's not the case that we're out there, you know, winning all these cups and doing all these things. You know, we have some accolades, but largely it's the product speaking for itself. You know, and people are taking it home. Pardon. They're finding that there's something there that has value that they really like. They're sharing it with their friends. And, you know, they're coming back for more. And then their friends are coming back. You know, so we've got these pockets all over the country and around the world. You know, in other countries that people are, there's just, there's these little, you know, we're, we're, we're sitting on, uh, we're planting these seeds and it's really catching, you know, some serious, uh, it's really taking, you know, and, and Maine is one of those places, you know, where, you know, we've, it's just been uh, this steady progression of interest and of feedback and of just, you know, really positive results for people and, uh, and then more and more interest and more and more interest. And that's, you know, something that I understood very well from my own experience with the KC-36. And that's why I did it that way. I knew that it would eventually, you know, if, if my work was good enough that it would work, that it would do its thing. And that, for example, the KC-36, you know, if the seeds that I purchased in 1997, that quality had been available continually over the years, I, I went back and bought it five times just hoping I might find something that was like the mother, you know, just because I wanted to very, you know, we'll see what else was there, <laughs> you know, as, as, a, as someone who loves to see what comes up, you know, and it was never close. And I know hundreds of people that have bought those seeds and it was never close, you know, but what would have happened if they were? Think about that. How many people were inclined to buy just because of this one phenotype? If there had been hundreds of them, how many people would have come back to Casey and Brandis for the scenes? And so there's this fear in letting your genetics out. It's like, well, you're giving it away. They're going to steal it from you. And it's like, well, that's fine. Then you just keep creating and they'll just have to keep chasing you. Right? So unless you're, you know, think you're not able to keep creating, or continually create, then yeah, then you clutch onto that painting and charge as much as you can for it. But that's just not the way, that's not the perspective of art. You know, to me, this is art. Creating is like the most wonderful thing you could possibly do in life and especially in this place of create, you know, be having the power of creation and the ability to be creative. 
that's the best that there is to be enjoyed. Period. And how do you go about doing that with the plants and deciding, for example, how to use that creativity to make certain combinations? And similar to the question that I asked before, are there any particular ones that are you're super excited about? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited every year, you know, but more so lately because I've really been putting a lot more effort into it because I think when you have base material that you've been working with for a long time over many generations, that you start to have some pretty clear perspective on what's going to happen uh, when you cross it with other things, you know, when you start to delve into creating other things, you know. So that just... Um, it's like, it's just having pushed all the buttons, you know, you have a different level of confidence uh, in creating. Uh, and then being in the flow of doing so is, is really where inspiration strikes. So for me, inspiration is everything, you know? Like, I have to feel like, oh, yeah, those two. Those two make a lot of sense, you know? And it's like, it's, it's, it's not just, I don't know, I guess it's, it's just more intuitive. It's never just, like, I'm trying to go for this or... Uh, maybe sometimes it is. There's sometimes there's specific goals. It's different every time, I'd say. But it's, inspiration is is a, is a really powerful thing, and, and being open to it, listening to your to the plants when they speak to you, your particular terpene. And, and another aspect is you know seeing the ways that you can take something that's great and make it even better, you know? And once you get to that place of creativity, then it gets really fun, you know? So like, like for example, strawberry banana, right? I mean, one of the great terpenes of the modern time, you know, undeniably, but it wasn't perfect as a flower. It had, whole, it had, it had, it had weaknesses. Uh, one of them was the very, uh, narcotic body high that wasn't very powerful nor was it very uh it had very low ceiling so you could smoke a lot of it the buzz didn't last for very long and then you know you could you pretty soon you couldn't feel it you could not smoke it throughout the day and you know those kinds of things so you know crossing that one you know that was one that i wanted to fix those aspects but keep the, that terpene that really special terpene and maybe you know twist it a little bit and crossing with Casey 36 is one, you know, where it's, that's just, that's one that's uh, a foundational strain. It's unreleased. It's just always turned out gold. Time and again, you know, it's uh, marriage made in heaven. And so only now I'm releasing some of the next generation of, of that. So, you know, some of that cross is uh, going to be available, for example, in the Moroccan fruit that we're putting out that is now available, which is the Moroccan peaches crossed with the uh, strawberry banana and KC36 hybrid. You know, it's uh, just an example, you know, how you start to think and how you start to be able to improve on things at least in ways that appeal to you or make sense. And in this case, since you've been seemingly focused on hash for some time now, these genetics are geared towards specifically water hash making or are you is there a spectrum of things that people can expect to find in the gear yeah you know there's the vast majority of you know i've opened up so much of my catalog this year that there's a wide variety of 
things that I think can satisfy a lot of different goals in terms of looking for flour or looking for, for hash, you know, but my goals, at least for the time being, I know that in these past few seasons have been completely focused on the resin. Of course, you know, structure and flour, you know, bag appeal has been less of the focus, but there's no lack of that. Uh, and a lot of the things that I'm working with. So, but it, you know, I think it's, I mean, if you look at how 710 Labs, for example, has taken this, you know, what they're doing with the Service 36 flower right now, I think it shows that, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of value there, without a doubt, even though, you know, but, you know, you can't have a great flower without a great resin to begin with. So there are those. It's certainly been the focus. Cool. Jumping around a bit, let's talk a little bit about how you've seen the evolution of hash and its processing. So I'm assuming earlier it wasn't as a refined process it is as it is today. What are some of the changes that you've seen and how do you feel like it's impacted the quality of the resin? Well, it's been huge. You know, the, I think the most poignant aspect of it all is the, the paradigm shift from the mentality of trash to stash to gold in, gold out. That, that I think was the, the mantra, you know, that we all sort of embarked on this journey with. And, you know, it's still one of the things that, you know, has led us to be to where we are with this movement because taking your dry trim and, and turning it into hash, you know, and, you know, that was all just a, a means of trying not to waste and to get the most value that we could. The process of taking the very best tricot flowers and chopping them to extract a resin, you know, hugely different, obviously. It's been amazing. It's been wonderful. It's been hugely beneficial for everyone, for the entire industry, for the, you know, every, every farmer, every one that's a part of this, you know. Especially the the rosin revolution that began in early 2014. I mean, that really opened the doors because now you know you this this became so you know accessible to a whole range of people that didn't necessarily have to be the best growers or be you know have all this space or you know now they could get a little material and press some rosin or they could have a small grow and and, and make a decent amount of money making some, you know, browsing out of it or some milk. And, um, yeah, I can't say enough about just how, how huge that has been. Yeah, I was going to ask, and I've, something that I've asked other people on the show before is, do you feel like what we know now as like the solventless movement would be where it's at without rosin? No, no. It's the accessibility, the simplicity that lends itself to, to its rapid spread just easily accessible, the barriers to entry are extremely low. It's just so simple. Anyone can do it. But, you know, I think there's a certain amount to which, regardless of its simplicity, like anything else, there's an aspect of experience that there's no cheat code for. There's no, well, you, you know, you can't steal it, you can't buy it. I guess you can buy a consultation, but that's just buying the recipe. Essentially, you still have to put in the time. It's like I said, I use this analogy with my friends, you know, so you can 
walk into the kitchen and make a sandwich doesn't mean that you're now a chef. Uh, just because you can walk in there and feed yourself doesn't mean that you are now a chef. It means that, you know, you can feed yourself and you're not going to die. But there's a whole lot of paying your dues and failing a lot and not giving up that comes with achieving true mastery in anything. There's a lot of, you know, really passionate people in this industry, and I respect every one of these young folks that is out there paying their dues and staying hungry and trying their best to have integrity in what they're doing. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we said, in many respects. It's the youth that's feeling this movement. I just, uh, you know, I respect everyone as part of this, without a doubt. We've puffed on quite a few of your flavors today. A lot of it has been in fresh press. Is that something that you're putting out pretty consistently? And are you also doing like cold cure batter type consistencies as well? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It seems like the market really likes both. Cold cure obviously dominates the market. I think, you know, a lot for simplicity, for just the ease of use. But uh, no, we like all of it, without a doubt. Uh, you know, I'd say I'd say I like them equally. Yeah, and we were talking about the in between stages, between, for example, when it goes from fresh press into its more settled form, or like we said earlier, possibly cured is another word to be used, mm-hmm. and how sometimes some of the genetics can express themselves better. Maybe is not the right word, but express themselves in a different way Mm -hmm. in these different forms can you tell us what you've seen in regards to that since you work with genetics that do have a lot of the same kind of lineage behind them so yeah it's interesting because you know the more it seems like the more complex you know one of the inherent traits of the KC36 that was also makes it really special is the fact that it, would, it expresses itself differently in different situations. It just has a really wide range of terpene in, in its expression. And so sometimes it can smell. I've just heard it described in so many different ways that it's, it's amazing sometimes. But I'd say that it's very, the process of going from fresh press into a dry wax and nucleating, as some people like to say. Yeah, certainly has some really enjoyable stages, you know, definitely uh, where it is expressing itself in different ways. Uh, The more complexity, the more it tends to do that. Well, John, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I'll start winding it down. You talked a little bit about inputs and its effect on the quality of the resin or the perception that you have of it. Can you talk about how you feel inputs translate into the final product of the hash in this case? Well, they're crucial. I think that the quality and the combination of inputs is is really important. I mean, it, it really, um, you can increase resin quality a lot by increasing your microbial activity. It's amazing to the degree to which you can do that and which you actually have, you know, your, the ability to have, you know, make some really spectacular resin uh, when you have natural and organic inputs combined in the right environment, 
the use of microbial teas uh, is something that really fuels the microbial process, you know, the microbial activity in your soil. And uh, so, you know, if you think that the thing about growing a soil is that you have such a large degree, you know, it really, it's, it's much harder to overdo things, you know, so I think, you know, the, the, some of the best results I've ever seen come from a, a large variety and, and the highest quality of, of, of inputs that I could combine with including the microbial teas and high quality composts and other natural and organic inputs like that. So yeah, you know, inputs are, are crucial and they, they come through in the product in a, in a major way. But, you know, it's kind of, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you don't really have perspective on what uh, 50 pounds weighs if you've never lifted 100 pounds or, you know, anything more than that, so to speak. So it's like, yeah, I think what's possible, you know, it hasn't even been, I really don't, you know, I don't feel like it's uh, the bar has been reached or, you know, that the limit has been reached that it's certainly... uh, uh, a lot to be explored there and you know th- that the bar can be raised a lot higher as a mom and pop craft farmer you know you can only uh, achieve so much you can certainly keep the quality extremely high but I think that yeah there's a lot to be explored there still and there's a, you know a lot of innovation there you know there's, there's a lot of uh, companies out there that have been uh, putting out some really quality products with uh, microbial teas and other uh, probiotics and probiotic elements and uh, under, uh, understanding very well that it's that, that intense microbial activity that produces the most beautiful results. That relationship between the roots and the soil uh, being really active and just full of high-quality inputs. Cool. I appreciate you sharing. You know, now it seems like uh, people are constantly looking for, for example, new cultivars. And we talked about pheno hunting. And, you know, going back to growing, for example, in Texas, you likely were growing one or two strains at one time. Or, you know, within your, your pheno hunts as well, you had the ones that were part of your stable. Those you were able to likely dial in better over time. And now with genetics, uh, it feeling like they need to change all the time within the gardens or having wide selections. How do you do that versus being able to run the same thing and, and know, you know, what you're doing? And like you said earlier, you tried a variety of methods to do it, but the genetics stayed the same and you understood the different potentials that it had. And now running so many genetics, how do you do that? How do you balance that? I, I balance styling them in each individually for their maximum potential. I think that it's a matter of perspective because once you've seen enough times what is conducive or what traits are going to uh, end up being the desirable ones or achieving the goals that you're able to predict a lot better. That's really the crux of it. It's about experience and perspective and having done it enough times and worked with the material enough times to know what's to come. And it's an art. It's an art form. You know, it's not always perfect. It certainly works. Do you work with a freeze dryer currently? Yeah. You know, I think that 
the um, efficiency of course is just hard to compete with period I think we can all hear that but yeah no, I do think air drying is um, it's, it's, a, it's such a tedious art you know it's certainly worth the effort it's just hard to do at scale or do it uh, with any you know serious consistency as I think those of us who uh, did it for a very long time are you know enough you know, you know, get to. Uh, that's why there's so few people doing it. You know, it's like um, definitely like chopping wood. You know, everybody's buying. You know, there's most people aren't out there chopping wood. If you had to name three people who have been most influential to you in your hash journey in particular, who would they be? In the hash journey, it's hmm. a good question. Three people. Well, I think you know. I think the whole community was influential and everyone played a role in that, you know? So I think to, to say, you know, was it Matt, was it Frenchy, was it any number of the other hash makers that were part of the scene at the time? I'd say in honest, all honesty, it was the whole picture that, you know, the whole, it, it, it inspired. Uh, our path and concentrates and our ground and everything. It was really the experience of the dispensary, the community that arose surrounding the dab, the dab lounge, and all of the knowledge and information that we all shared, all of the seminars that we were a part of, all of the people that we surrounded ourselves with. And it was that, it was really that, the community, though, so, you know, I'd say above all things and uh, you know I, I wish I could say it was some ash maker from Amsterdam or some or you know any number of people in particular but I can't say it necessarily you know I, I really feel that it's it was more of the, the movement and we all felt it I didn't idolize anyone in particular personally fair enough if you could hear from someone on this podcast that hasn't been on, who would it be? Uh, you know, I think, can I get to say two? <laughs> sure. Does it have to be a hash maker? It no. should probably be a hash maker or no? Not necessarily. Yeah, related, yeah. uh, I say, um, I think uh, Richard Lee is someone who uh, is seriously understated and who deserves a lot of respect. I think that, you know, as far as uh, you know, the hash community, you know, I'd say one's Medicine Farms. You know, he's kind of a low-key type of uh, brand person, but uh, I think that he has his place as well uh, in the progression. You know, they move to push towards growing naturally and showing the potential of that. And I'd say that that you know it could be one. And then I have to see who else, you know, that's the only one that I know for sure you haven't had. So I, I honestly have to look at the whole list of who you have had. Yeah. Because I imagine it, it seems like it's you've covered quite some ground at this point. Yeah, it's been a good number. So I appreciate that one. I, uh, I like to always take these suggestions and see if I can you know, make them happen down the line. So uh, again, thanks for that. And thanks for hanging out with me this long and hanging out today, you know, day again after the Eagle Clash, it's uh, been kind of a 
I think we both mentioned that we're, you know, feeling a little tired <laughs> from yesterday. The, the clash, uh, the clash over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's been that kind of day for sure. But yeah, you know, special, special thanks for, for hanging out, uh, for talking. Uh, I had fun. Hopefully you did too. And, you know, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we sign off? No, thanks for this, uh, you know, the opportunity to be part of your platform, part of this. And, um, yeah, I just want to say thanks to, you know, everyone who's been a part of this, of, of my journey, every, everyone who's supported uh, my efforts, to my family, to everyone in this community that's out there, you know, work putting in the time putting in the passion, staying hungry, and helping to move the needle forward for uh, what is a, can be a very bright future. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's still a lot of fight uh, that we that left, you know, in order to really not only uh, get the politics to a place uh, where uh, it's more just for all of us, but and also to progress this, uh, continue to grow this global solidness movement to a point where uh, the world can no longer deny uh, the fact that this planet uh, uh, deserves its rightful place. And thank you to anyone who kept up with us this long. Again, if you want to follow John on Higher Ground or pick up his seeds, you can do so on Instagram at Higher Ground Canna or HigherGroundCanna.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.